Hello, welcome to the Backport Stories podcast with Chuck Stead. Today is episode four, and immediately following, there'll be a chat with Chuck Stead, yours truly, Joe Serino, and a special guest, Mr. Scott Lewis, who is the composer who wrote the music that you hear at the beginning, the middle, and the end of each of our podcasts. We hope you enjoy today's show. And now, here's Chuck Stead. Hi, this is Chuck, and this story, which is called A Nearly Perfect Game, actually happens on the same night as a previous story from episode three, which is called Hayo Silver. So if you heard that, you'll recognize some of what's going on simultaneously. And if not, you can always go back to it because the two stories actually plug into one another. Two bar rooms and a bowling alley in the village of Suffern were said to have a television at that time. Three stores were said to be selling them, but only one store had them displayed in the window. Buying a television in the early 1950s was an event. This was post-wartime, when suburban sprawl brought with it terms like normalization, white collar, and middle class. Families ate sandwiches made on Wonder Bread, with peanut butter named Skippy or Jiffy, and kids were encouraged to watch The Howdy Doody Show or Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, or The Infamous Mouseketeers, and they were discouraged from listening to rock and roll or going to the movies to see James Dean or Marlon Brando. With the newfound popularity of staying-at-home television entertainment, movie houses offered incentive gifts along with the price of admission. This could amount to an entire set of plateware accumulated after some 30 visits. Everyone had to have one. In a time when the new line of automobiles was previewed in Life magazine and car showrooms were shrouded in brown wrapping paper until unveiling day, a television was something maybe everyone could afford. And if they couldn't have all the new labor-saving devices of modern America, they could at least have that big box with that little window to alleviate the boredom. That night, down in the bowling alley, few people paid any attention to the masked man's adventures. True, the evil cattle rustlers had saw to it that our hero, the Lone Ranger, had fallen into quicksand, and viewers everywhere were held in suspense while that little fellow, that little guy Speedy with the Alka-Seltzer cap on his head, talked about upset stomachs. And by the time the ranger was up to his lapels in mud, the suffering bowling alley crowd just studied one man about to throw his eighth strike in a row. Walt Stead, my dad, was never one for crowds. He didn't like to draw attention to himself. As a young man, he played in team sports, where the attention of the spectators was shared with the entire team. He'd been a good dancer, but didn't care to be the first one on the floor. He carried himself through life in a slow, methodic fashion, as opposed to the driving, nervous, curious energy of his brother, my Uncle Mal. Walt didn't care one way or another about television. He could take it or leave it. Tessie, my mom, held her television in high regard. She even picked out her wardrobe according to what Lucy was wearing on the I Love Lucy show. The television to my mom was her window into everything she never had and everything she still wanted. That night, after kicking out his Dr. Grabow pipe purchased at the local pharmacy and shoving its warm, empty bowl into the back pocket of his linen white trousers, a habit my mom hated for the moist stem always left a caramel-colored stain in the seat of his pants, How could a man go about through life with such a stain on the seat of his pants? That night, he took hold of the ebony bowling ball, 
sunk two fingers and a thumb into the familiar holes of the cool, smooth surface. And with the same style and timing that he had used on the same hardwood alley for the past 15 years, he threw a strike. Tessie looked around quickly to see if anyone noticed. To her satisfaction, there were a couple of raised eyebrows. He took hold of the ball again, and with the same ease of a gentle wind, he threw a second strike. They say it was Chickadoo, a round-nosed mason, who placed the first bet of $2 that Waltstead could not throw a third strike. He was down at the bowling alley quarreling with Barrelhead over the blasting restrictions issue when he noticed Walt throw the second strike. Frustrated at the possibility and consequences of any further delays concerning his concrete rigs and the never-ending throughway operation, he found satisfaction in plunking down $2 and betting Barrelhead that Walt could not do it again. Now, Barrelhead Jackson was ordinarily not a gambling man, but locked into a no-win struggle to justify his attempt to check the almighty movement of the New York State Thruway. He slapped two dollars on top of Chickadoo's challenge, and Waltstead threw a third strike. And the old barrel grabbed the money and roared that life was indeed worth living. Chickadoo dug into his pocket and challenged him double or nothing. Walt threw the fourth ball, and Chickadoo lost. Word travels fast in a small town, especially on a summer night in the time before air conditioning, when windows were left open to catch the evening breeze. A local cop crossed the street to the bowling alley. He thought, considering the size of the crowd, there might be a fight. He found everyone hushed and waiting. A western adventure was being ignored on the TV over the bar, and in the silence only the constant whir of the electric metal fans could be heard, while the crowd of onlookers waited and the cop saw that there beyond the folding table, which had been established as a betting booth, a man stood quietly holding his bowling ball. It seemed as if his very fate was in balance within that dense black sphere he held gently in his hands as he stared over top of it and down upon the assembly of white pins at the end of a long strip of highly polished hardwood. Behind him, sitting erect and proud, and for the moment far from her small-town anonymity, was the man's partner, pencil in hand, ready to work another X upon the scorecard. A moment later, the crowd cheered in triumph, and Tessie X'd out the next square. Now the room was in a frenzy. It was betting. A time limit of 15 minutes was established between throws. Walt maintained 15 minutes between throws would be his limit, or else he might break the momentum. Barrelhead, whose good fortune at staying in the gamble brought him clear to $150 profit, monopolized the corner payphone in an attempt to contact Uncle Mal. He counted on Walt's brother to utilize his contacts with the Rockland Independent, a small Ramapo newspaper. But Mal wasn't in, and instead the old barrel tried desperately to get his message across to Aunt Ev, who could barely make out what he was saying with all the shouting in the background. Finally, she just hung up. She walked outside into the summer evening to look for Mal who was no longer at Flo and Hunter's porch. He'd walked down the street toward the throughway construction to look at what was no longer the same. So Aunt Ev joined the others at Flo and Hunter's, where Aunt Dot was now telling them that little Muffy had damn there given her a heart attack. Aunt Ev then announced that Walt was presently running an illegal gambling event down at the Suffern Bowling Alley. They all agreed it must be Tessie's influence, given her Catholic background with all that bingo that they play. And Pop Stead, after blowing out a soft blue cigar smoke ring, declared the whole thing could be blamed on television. 
Waltstead, in his early 40s, was average height, average build, starting to thicken a bit in the middle. He was once remembered for his unparalleled contributions to the local baseball team. His infamous single-handed triple play, which stopped the game for a round of applause. And he had a kind of Gary Cooper persona. Like a scene from High Noon, he stood on the alleyway, staring at his fate, another set of pins. The challenge was no longer this strike, but the one following it. The last strike. The perfect game. Tessie Stead sat poised and ready to X out the little box on the score sheet. A solemn hush fell over the crowd. And again, only the whir of the electric fans could be heard. And again, they waited almost breathless as Walt stared down at the white pins gathered at the alley's end. Then he danced forward from such perfect stillness to such sudden movement, so natural a swing of the arm, the ball struck without noticeably even leaving his hand, and collectively the gasp drew back through the crowd as the pins bounced about helplessly, not one of them left standing. The applause shook the room as Tessie checked off the next-to-last box. No money was added to the table. The bets had all been placed and they were now held, and there was only the last set of pins to deal with. Walt stepped back as his ball rolled up the ramp toward him. He glanced at the faces of expectation and settled upon his view of his wife, who sat still, very still, and waiting. In her face there was no traces of the argument they'd had earlier concerning her desire to purchase a new RCA Magnavox, the big one encased in walnut-stained cabinet with raised panel doors. No, that wife of his who so badly wanted to have the newest television set on 2nd Street, was no longer the same person, filled with discontent for not having enough money for a new television. She was changed. Instead, what he saw was a woman who wanted something else. She offered up a smile. He took hold of his ball, and he turned around. The room fell silent. He waited. Someone coughed. Barrelhead raised a pint of beer to his lips, but... No, he did not drink. He lowered it. Chickadoo nervously considered the spectacle of a folding table spilling over with cash. And then Walt fell into movement. And the crowd, in a single collective effort, held its breath. Tessie touched the pencil to the last of the score boxes. And the lights went out. They first blamed the whole thing on the electric fans, too many of them running at once, but soon it was discovered that the entire village had gone black. Apparently, the increased demand on local utilities as a result of all the new television users had taken its toll. It was almost an hour before the lights went back on again in the alleyway. Flashlight beams had darted about nervously, and a couple of storm lamps were lit while people talked amongst themselves and waited. It was an odd time suspended there in the dark of the bowling alley. Years later, my mother described it as a feeling like, well, we were all kind of half dead. When the lights returned, everyone resumed their positions. Walt, who had been smoking his Dr. Grabow pipe, took it out of his mouth and placed it into a a buffed metal ashtray. As he did this, he looked at Tessie. They were very close now, and only she heard him say, I think I lost my rhythm. She refused to acknowledge this, and with her pencil she drew the first line for the final X in the score box. He took hold of his bowling ball. He stared down the alley at the pins. Again, he fell into his movement. It seemed to Barrelhead that the journey was somehow prolonged this time. A moment later, 
one pin stood against the dark, gaping mouth of the end of the alley. Walt turned around, he looked at Tessie and said, That's the best game I've ever thrown. As they drove home that night in the old Dodge, their conversation returned again to domestic issues. Tessie returned to her pitch for the classic Magnavox with the cabinet and found to her surprise that Walt was no longer resistant. Before she could even recite the payment plan offered to her by the salesman, Walt said that the Emerson had a tendency to cut off the top of Sid Caesar's head, so perhaps it was time they become an RCA family. Tessie, who enjoys a dynamic confrontation, felt that there was nothing worse than winning an argument without having to argue. and She told him so. Well, Mama, we already argued about that before we got to the bowling alley. That was a separate argument. No, it wasn't. It was about the same thing. But it was not argued at the same time. Well, of course not. How, how can you have two different arguments at the same time? There, there. Now, you admit they are two different arguments. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. And, and, and this argument, which is an argument about arguing, is a third entirely new and different argument. Walt surrendered. He cast his thoughts out into the pale yellow of the Dodge headlamps, following the crusted clay distortions of the detour along the throughway construction. Out there against the black of night was his brother Mal. Mal walked along the dusty road with both hands shoved deep into his trouser pockets, walking through the memory of all his years in the Ramapo Valley, tramping over the top of places no longer his to know, Mal, looking for something familiar. Walter, looking at Mal, eased the Dodge up slowly to where his brother stood. Hello, Mal. Oh, oh, it's you, Walt. Oh, hello there, Tessie. Hello, Mal. Mal laid his left hand on the hood of the car. He looked into the starry night over the valley to where there was no construction. He inhaled the warm summer sky deep into his sinal cavity, the scent of clay, soil, and concrete dust, and then he jerked his head to the right and snorted it all out and blew it through his nostrils to the ground. They're coming, damn it. Yes, sir, they're coming. I see their cars and their noise. I see it in my head. They're crowding. They're meddling. They're, you know, you know, Walt Pop says it's the television that changes things, but good Lord Almighty, a television you can turn off. You can't turn off a goddamn throughway. Walter nodded slowly. His soft, smoky voice rose up from the car. Nearly threw a perfect game tonight. That right? Yep. But the lights went out, and after they came back on, I only knocked down a spare. Mal shook his head. He turned away from the car. He looked south into the valley out toward the faint light of suffering. Without looking back at them, he said into the night, They're coming. And come hell or high water, there ain't nothing that we can do about it. That was terrific. It's a fantastic story. <laughs> I loved God. it. I loved it. Man, you had us in the bowling alley. Yes. We were right there. We were watching. We are having fun. Oh, my God. I was wondering if he had thrown that last ball before the lights went out. The anticipation was driving me crazy, but uh, <laughs> it, it was, uh, oh, man, what a great story. That's and I so love cool. how the, the looming throughway issue is through the entire story, but it's just in the background as all really important, terrible things 
<laughs> will always be. And you go about your business, but it's still there. And you just drop little hints of it crumbs. throughout the whole crumbs. story. I'm dropping crumbs along the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that, you know, really that says an awful lot. Because what you have here in this little village is Americana, the way it used to be. The most important thing in the, in the world and in the lives of all of those people that night is, is Walt going to throw a perfect game? They're all gathered around and excited about it. And meanwhile, the whole world around them is completely changing in very huge ways. And Mal knows it. He knows yeah. this yeah. is never going to be the same, right? Yeah. Yeah, Mal, Mal in, in, in the way I grew up, Mal played a very important role because he was that, he reckoned with that stuff. Mm-hmm. And some of it he embraced wholeheartedly and some of it he, even the, even the stuff he embraced, he knew it was dangerous. Yeah. It was going to alter everything. When was the throughway actually completed? Like around what year? Well, they said it was completed in 53, but I don't think it was fully opened in, until 55. Yeah. yeah. So that would have been right at the time that I was a baby toddler. Yep. Kid, yeah. you know, in the crib. So Tessie was there with him too, huh? Your mom was <laughs> was there cheering him on. She. It's funny what you said first because when the lights went out, Tessie listened. She her version of the story was she listened for the sound of the pins going down. Uh huh. You know, she 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 was ready for the <laughs> of, of the pins going up, and and they weren't going down. You know, because yeah. he hadn't thrown yet. <laughs> she figured he would just throw in the dark. You know, he was so good now he could do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's great in contrast to lots of other stories where those two characters are usually at odds and they do end up at odds again at the end. For this little window there, you, you see the love and the support mm-hmm. and she's really pulling for him mm-hmm. and he knows that she's there for him. It's really beautiful, but you don't say anything. About yeah, it. yeah, it's, yeah. You just you live can't, it. You, you know, can't, you got to. Yeah, it's just got to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's so true. It's this little romantic moment. He, you know, they had their argument in the beginning, but now he's my hero. Look at this guy. He's <laughs> dazzling the whole town and everything. She's shining, and then they go back to it at the end. But that was so much fun too. The idea because I know your dad and and his rhythm and everything, and you you get it so perfectly right you know which i guess one could expect that because you lived with him your whole life but uh but he was this kind of gentle easygoing relatively quiet man who never really saw a purpose in arguing why would we do that you know, <laughs> that doesn't make sense let's just talk everything's fine and Everything tessie kept right. track of the arguments too yeah <laughs> yeah so he was he, he was in it totally disposed to to buy the big tv then yeah and we got it we got it shortly after. Well, I don't remember the early one except I saw the Lone Ranger on it. Yeah. The TV that I really lived with was the Magnavox, the one that, you know, had the, the cabinet. Right. Yeah. Was that a color TV or a... No, it's black and white. Still black and white. Still yeah. black and white. Your family had the first color TV in the Kylie clan. We, we did, yeah. It, and it was... Um, I'll never forget it. I, I, this always sounds silly to people when I say this, but I was about 13 years old when we got this color TV. And the thing was just filled with these tubes that were filled with gas and everything else, and it had a smell to it. Mm-hmm. And when it came on, you heard, you know, this kind of <laughs> static, you know, it just filled up all the electricity in the back. And, and I was always crazy about 
technical things. So I'd open up the back and look at it and all these lights inside. And there were I was afraid to open up the back of a TV. Oh, man. <laughs> I loved it. I just loved it. And then it. you'd have to replace the tubes once in a while, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, in our village, uh, the Cramshaws, the people I call the Cramshaws, Ricky Cramshaw, his father was the TV repairman yeah. who would come to our house with a bag, much like a doctor's bag, with all the parts, the, the little black tip glass tubes. And it was very mysterious. It was like a member of your family got ill. And he would come in and he'd take that thing off the back of the TV and he would consider it and he'd have it like a dog. Hmm, oh, 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 you know? yeah, and, yeah. and he'd be very concerned about it. He See, was the TV doctor. Yeah, he That's was. That's so interesting because my mother tells a story around this same time living in the Bronx that when the TV went out, her father and she would open the back and take out all the tubes and there was this big map of where they go back oh my. and take them to the pharmacy to the druggist wow and there would be a big machine a table where you would plug they each would one them. in oh. and if the light bulb went on you knew it was okay and you just yeah. kept going through all of the ones i never heard of that that's yeah. so cool and then you get the one you need and then you've got to go home and put everything back in the right place yeah. <laughs> right. and you can have no extra parts <laughs> absolutely not the so, tube tester yeah right yeah, tube tester so yeah maybe that's a difference between country living and and city, city living, living back then maybe maybe because yeah. we never had that at least i don't remember having that and i remember him, uh, 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 uh the cramshaw uh, father who was whose real name was Hal. i remember him always going out like he had a, a truck with other parts in it and his bag and everything and that was primarily his job yeah and it was primarily hillburn a little bit of suffering it, it, it because enough people had, t and also TVs broke down all the time in the beginning. Sure, <laughs> and they did conduct themselves like doctors. They did yes. have a bag, mm. yes, you know, with all the different tubes in it. Yep, and they yep. just like you say, they'd open up the back, they kind of surveil it and everything, you know. And there occasionally might be, you know, as the doctor does, you know, the shaking of the head, like, yeah, I've got a big problem here. You yes, know? <laughs> so, yes, you don't yeah. want to see that head shake. No, no, no. And and my mom would be there, and she would say to him. Well, now, let me tell you uh, what we've observed. And she would, like, the you know, horizontal hold was out or something. And she would describe it like she was describing conditions of an ailment. Yeah. And he would listen and <laughs> nod his head. <laughs> right, right, sure. Yeah. Oh, man. That's the way TVs were back the, then. The Magnavox TV that we got had these doors that you could close. Mm -hmm. So it looked kind of like a big, strange piece of furniture in your room, but not like a TV, unless you knew there was a screen behind the doors. Yeah. And Tessie always made sure that the doors were closed when he worked on it, because in her mind, she believed the television could suddenly, if he did something wrong, explode. Yeah. And if oh, the doors wow. were closed, that would contain the explosion. It would just take him out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not the family. And how much electricity do you think a TV used? Oh, I don't know. Because... I, from the story, even just the idea was must have been floating around that all these new devices must right. be using all the electricity. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I think there was the fear that they were gobbling up too much electricity. But in the fifties, there was um, they, they didn't do a lot of air conditioning yet, but they had lots of fans. Everybody had fans, and everybody at one point had televisions. So that's what I don't know if that's what caused the brownout, but that's what it was blamed on. Of course, you know, once, once Grandpa realized the brownout happened, that was it. it was the damn television is responsible for the whole thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're wrecking the whole world right It's now. not the freezers and the uh, refrigerators. Right, right. It's not the things that probably take a lot more. You're right. Hmm. So I didn't know your dad was uh, 
that he was uh, a bowler. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was good. As a matter of fact, I'm, uh, I'm going to tell this later in another story. He had a, he had a, a well-known bowling partner in the Suffern uh, Bowling Alleys. You, I, you want me to tell you now? Yeah, that, sure. Okay, it's good. It'll, folks will hear it later again. Uh, Babe Ruth. No kidding. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Babe, the Babe liked to come to like a little town and bowl. But he didn't want a fuss made over him, even though he was the consummate egotist and he loved the media. There was the time when he wanted his downtime. And, yeah. uh, and he found the Suffern Bowling Alley because he knew somebody up in Suffern. So he'd go there. And he bowled for a while until he found that Walt was you know, the keenest bowler. So he took him in as a partner. He says, you and I are playing these uh, uh, folks. And Walt didn't even tell anybody for a while because, again, Walt's unassuming. And it led to a really interesting story because uh, Babe Ruth, he came to see Walt play ball. You know, Walt was his baseball player all the time too, you know, amateur uh, ball. And he came to watch him once because he heard about the triple play that Walt had done, you know. So he wanted to see, because Walt was shortstop, he wanted to see him play. And uh, he actually, afterwards, the next time he saw him in the bowling lanes, he, he offered uh, Walt a position on what would then have been the, the, Dodger, the Brooklyn Dodgers Farm League. Kidding. Wow. But I, I won't that. tell you how, what happened to that offer. That'll, that'll be in the story when we tell that. And let me tell you, the Kylies, our grandmother, mm -hmm. loved the Dodgers. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And when the Dodgers moved out of New York, oh, my. It was like somebody died. It was yep. unbelievable. They were yep. really emotional about yes. it. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. What year? Do you remember? Do you know that history? It when has they to be like out? 57. Uh, they moved out to California. But yeah. uh Oh, it was just devastating. They just couldn't believe that, you know, their guys, the Dodgers, were, were going to leave New York. Oh, well, that God. Walt story with Babe Ruth uh, at the bowling alley was earlier than that, uh -huh. you know, by a good bit. And um, it would have been interesting if he had followed that line and gotten into the Dodgers and then moved away. You know, I, I think that's part of how that never happened because, you know, uh -huh. The Stead, the Stead boys were not going to pull away from Hilburn. They, they were in the soil. Yeah. yeah, sure. Well. Yes. I'm looking at the clock, and we're right at 30, and I think yep. that's what we want to try to keep these two. Yep, sounds good. Oh, next week, the name of our story is Heebie Jeebie Tells About the Ramapo Salamander. One other thing I just want to say before we go, uh, since we have Scott here, the music that you hear at the beginning and at the end was composed by Scott Lewis, who's here today. So when did you do that? Oh, that was written in 1992. Because it really fits this material perfectly. It just, there's something about it. Yeah, I love it. It's just the vibe, the rhythm, the whole thing. It's just exactly right. So It's weird because I wrote it as a grad student and one of the playwriting professors was writing a show about the Wright brothers. And so this music called The Flyer's Rag was written for when the audience would come into the theater before the play begins, just yeah. sort of in the background. You know, we recorded it, he used it for that production, and, and that was it, and it kind of just sat around. And then last week, Chuck said, he's doing these podcasts, and he would really like some music. And I said, I know exactly <laughs> what you need. <laughs> and you pull it off the shelf, you dust it off, and here you go. It's, it is. That is great. That never happens. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's exactly that is, what so we needed. It's meant to be for this yeah. purpose, for sure. We have a rebirth here. Yes. yes. Song. <laughs> That's yes, great. Yes. Well, thank you so much for that. And Chuck, thank you so much. And we'll see you all next week. Let's, let's go out on the flyer's rag, eh? Hey?
listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m., so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.